0: Welcome to the Officer Effect, <laughs> a podcast of travel stories. Each week we hope to bring you a
1: conversation with someone we meet overseas. <laughs> and at at least one good
0: story.
2: Episode 97 A Time for War Idaho, where Ernest lost his memories. Literature is dangerous. Junior year of high school, I found out that Ernest Hemingway, the American novelist, left the US to become an expatriate and live abroad in Paris and Spain, and that that choice led to his writing. This knowledge blew me from my path like a gust of wind when I learned for the first time that you can live your life like a work of art. You can tend the path of your life just as carefully as a painter brushes a contour or a writer devises a narrative, and the result might be something beautiful instructive, and more varied than what I had known till then. The Spanish poet Federico Garcia Lorca said, Se vuelve de la inspiración como se vuelve de un país extranjero. El poema es la narración del viaje. You come back from inspiration the way you come back from a foreign country. Your writing is the telling of the trip. Hemingway grew up less than an hour from me, in another suburb of Chicago, Oak Park, Illinois. So I went to the museum at his house and asked why he traveled. Nancy Sindelar, who just recently wrote a book called Influencing Hemingway, which tackles the question of what exactly led to his great works, speculated with me what gusts might have driven his movement and work.
0: So Hemingway's travels were very much influenced by his interests, and one of his interests was war. Both of his grandfathers were uh, veterans of the Civil War, and when he was growing up, they were close by and both of them kind of said to Hemingway, this is the way men show honor and courage, and this is how you become a man. And he was very anxious to get involved in World War I, but because of poor eyesight, he wasn't able to enlist. So he was an ambulance driver uh, for the Red Cross. He jumped at the opportunity to do that, and then um, was stationed in Italy. So after spending the first 18 years of his life in Oak Park and then a few more, year, uh, a few more months in Kansas City, he went to Europe and he had a, just a life-changing experience being in Italy and he was in a trench uh, with some Italian soldiers and he was injured by a shell that was being shot into this trench by uh, Austrians. Mm -hmm. And he pulled, one of the fellows in the the trench was killed. Another had his legs blown off. Hemingway pulled the third one out and hauled him to safety. Um, But but in the process, he was, he was injured. He was injured. And so then he wound up going to the American Red Cross Hospital in Milan where he did his recovery. Um, so he, he had all of this excitement in Italy, including the war, understanding European culture, and he also fell in love with the nurse in the hospital, and she became the, the model for Catherine Barclay in A Farewell to Arms. So at the age of you know, 1920, he had this very exciting experience in Italy, and for the rest of his life, he would go back to Italy and just try to relive his youth or have other interesting experiences. Uh, now, there, there's comment out there that he didn't like old parts. I don't believe that that's true. I think he got a great foundation in Oak Park. He got a a very good education. He went to a very comprehensive high school, and he was very active as a high school student. And he was the editor of the newspaper. He played the cello in the orchestra. He was on the swimming team. He was on the football team. And he was also a good student. So he had a very rich life growing up with a lot of good academic training. His parents were very much uh, believers that, that he and his siblings had to be busy, had to be doing something worthwhile. There was no just sitting around if you were a Hemingway child. And, and so he had that, that experience. And so this interest in war uh, led him to Italy. And then later on in life, he became involved with the Spanish Civil War, and he went over to Spain as a reporter for the North American Newspaper Alliance. And as a result of his experiences with war, first of all in Italy, that became the basis for Farewell to Arms, and his experiences with uh, the Spanish Civil War that became For Whom the Bell Tolls. So the combination of love and war was always a a good source of information for him and and excited him with with the process of writing he later on in life went back to italy and was hunting on one of the little islands off of venice and he became infatuated with a 19 year old venetian girl now he was pushing 50 at the time. And this became the idea for Across the River and Into the Trees. So he, he loved Italy, he loved the idea of, of you know going off to different places and then writing about them. Um, getting back to the topic of war, he also was very much involved in World War II. Uh, he went over to, he was on Normandy Beach uh, on D-Day as a reporter for Collier's. And so he was, you could say, you know, he's involved with World War I, Spanish Civil War, World War II. Uh, he received a medal from the Italian government for his courage in World War I, and he also received a medal from the U.S. government for his reporting of World War II. So he, he liked all it. He liked the war and he liked the intrigues of it. And you know, I think that influence really started with his grandfathers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he got a lot of positive feedback. Even though he was injured, he never really complained about it. He, mm-hmm. But during World War I, he'd write back to his parents and the letters were uh, read by his father in the church and published in local papers. And and he was sort of the local hero when he got back to Oak Park. So, I mean, he always got really good feedback. So, part of his travels then were influenced by war. The the other influence was his interest in hunting and fishing. Mm. And so, again, it st- starts out during the war- Oak Park years where uh, His father and mother would take the family to Walloon Lake in Michigan during the summers. So for the first 18 years of his life, he spent every summer in Michigan, and that's where he learned to hunt and fish. His father loved fishing and was an excellent marksman and taught Ernest how to do that. And his mother, Grace Hall Hemingway, went along with the program. I mean, there were a lot of women back in that day that would not have wanted to take six children up to a cabin <laughs> in northern Michigan. but yeah. but Grace embraced the idea, and as a result, Ernest had this really well-developed interest in hunting and fishing. So during the Michigan years, he was, you know fishing for for trout and hunting ducks and squirrels. But as he became, older and more famous and had more resources, this interest just expanded. So after he he had the opportunity to, to go to Paris as a reporter for the Kansas City Star, when he left Paris, he went to Key West.
2: It should be noted that he worked for the Toronto Star at the time, not the Kansas City Star.
0: Because. Uh, John Dos Passos told him about what a great place it was for fishing and there are pictures of Hemingway with you know these huge marlin and the, the Caribbean was just teeming with fish back then so he was living in Key West didn't intend to spend as much time there as he did but he loved it because he would write in the morning and then he'd go out fishing in the afternoon and so the pictures of him fishing with these huge fish um, you know, he's he's delighted. At that time, he also was married to Pauline Pfeiffer, who had a lot of money, and her uncle, Gus Pfeiffer, adored Ernest, thought his life was very interesting, and he funded things like African safaris. <laughs> so the duck hunting and the squirrel hunting morphed into... African safaris where he's hunting rhinoceros and lions and, you know, huge game, and he's just loving all of that. Um, So again, the the hunting and and the fishing certainly inspire him during the the Key West years. Then he, after Key West, he, he moves to Cuba well, first he goes to Spain for the Spanish Civil War and then he, he comes back to Cuba because again of the, the fishing and he has his boat, the Pilar, and he's out in the Gulf Stream every afternoon fishing, thinking this is a wonderful thing. Um and Cuba's very hot and humid in the summer. So he he spends his summers during those years either in Wyoming or he starts to go up to, Colorado, uh, to Idaho, to, to the Sun Valley area. But again, that's because of hunting and fishing. And so he takes his children to Wyoming and teaches them to hunt. And then at the end of his life, when, when he leaves Cuba, he is in Ketchum, Idaho, which is the town that's next to Sun Valley. And he actually was able to stay as a guest in Sun Valley, as a guest, because by that point in his life, not only was he a prominent writer, but he had this mystique about him, about being a great hunter and fisherman. And so the the PR people thought, yeah, you know, let's have Hemingway here, um, and and he accepted it. So. He stayed for a while in in Sun Valley, and then after the Cuban Revolution, um, he was, let's say, encouraged by the U.S. government not to be this famous American writer living in Castro's Cuba. And so he and his fourth wife, Mary Hemingway, uh, bought a home in Ketchum, and that is where he ended his life. So, when you look at Hemingway's travels, I mean, you, you see him going places because there's a war, and throughout his life, he, he would use his journalism to get to these places. So, he goes, he goes to Paris because he's a journalist for the Toronto Star. He goes to Spain because he's a journalist for the North American Newspaper Alliance. But all of these places become the inspiration for his great novels. You know his Paris years, he develops interest in not only Paris, but in bullfighting. Mm-hmm. He meets, meets Robert McGElman there, who is interested in bullfighting and introduces him to Spain. So the Paris years, the Spain becomes the, the content for Sun Also Rises. And, as I said, the experience during World War One becomes the content for A Farewell to Arms. And all of these, these journalistic experiences get him to these places. And his journalism is actually really interesting to read. Um, <laughs> but, of course, the great novels come out of this experience, too.
1: Yeah. So, would you say he was restless? Was he
2: looking for something?
1: It's very unique how many places he ended up going. What?
0: I wouldn't say he was restless. He enjoyed being out in nature mm. and being in the outdoors. What he was looking for, I think, was rules to live by. I mean, one of these things that his father taught him, his father was a very strict Protestant, and in the Hemingway family there was no smoking, no drinking, no dancing, no card playing. You lived by this set of rules. Well, those weren't the rules that he ultimately lived by, but he was always kind of looking for how does a man live his life, particularly in the modern world where a bomb can just blow you up? Mm. And so what what he was, it, part of his fascination with war was he was interested in how people reacted under the pressure of war.
1: Yeah.
0: And so the phrase that he uses a lot, and that I use a lot in the book, is grace under pressure.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And he inter- he was interested in studying people in pressured situations. So hunting kind of gets involved with it. Fishing for big game and war all kind of fit that, that mold. And when, once you kind of get the, the Hemingway hero idea and the grace under pressure idea, his books kind of fall into place. You kind of see what he's doing. They're, they're, not, they're in different settings, but thematically they're not all that different.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the Paris years?
0: Well, he certainly had a wonderful time in Paris. (laughs) (laughs) He was in love. He was with his first wife, Hadley Richardson. And as his first wife, she supported his writing. They had a very frugal lifestyle. Hemingway had grown up in two beautiful homes in Oak Park that had you know, four, five, six bedrooms. And, and all of a sudden, he was in Paris with Hadley and they lived in this two-room apartment that was on the fourth floor. And you had, I've been in it. You have to walk up this spiral staircase and it didn't have running water. It had a, a Turkish toilet in the hallway. And it was pretty frugal living but they had a, a really good time there. And after she became pregnant, they, their first child uh, was born, or the only child he had with Hadley was born in Toronto. And Toronto wasn't exciting enough for him, so they moved back to Paris. And again, he's trying to support this family as a writer. And they're, they are struggling. Yeah. But he has this tremendous group of friends, people like Ezra Pound, James Joyce, Gertrude Stein, E. E. Cummings, and they're all there, you know, doing this experiment with, with literature and with painting. And this is where he begins to collect art. Gertrude Stein gives Ernest and Hadley the advice of don't spend money on clothes. Buy paintings. <laughs> and they did. And so the Hemingway art collection is worth a lot of money because he was buying Miro and, and the Impressionists when they were all just sort of experimenting with this idea. Yeah. And then, you know, they of course became famous too. So the Paris years were very frugal, but very enriching. For Hemingway, intellectually, and he was in love with Hadley, so they had a you know very warm, happy relationship, and and she bought into the program of this frugal lifestyle.
1: Um, she was English, wasn't she? You no, know, she was American. She was American. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And. Um, he reflects on that in *A movable Feast*. So, at the very end of his life, when he's writing this memoir, you know, he's thinking about the Paris years. And you know, I suppose, in time, good times always get better. So, you know, he's always thinking, "Yeah, those were those were good years." Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, and what about Spain? Uh, my, my journey began in Spain last year, inspired by him, so seeing my first bullfight was a mm-hmm. big mm-hmm. moment and going to Pamplona and yeah. all that. Well, he,
0: he became fascinated with the bullfight because of this whole idea of grace under pressure. Mm-hmm. I mean, if anybody is showing grace under pressure, it's a matador that has a bull charging at him or the matador is very skillful at bringing the bull close to the body and not flinching away or not doing something tricky with the muleta. Um So he's fascinated with the bullfight. Mm-hmm. One of the things that, that happened, I mean, he went back for the Spanish Civil War and he was uh, supporting the side of the Spanish Civil War That lost. Mm. So that was kind of a a problem because after he went back after the Spanish Civil War and Franco was in power, he really wasn't the local hero anymore.
1: Right, yeah. Um,
0: And (laughs) the other thing is that during the Spanish Civil War, the side that Hemingway supported was also supported by communist Russia. So there's always this thread running through the later years of, was Hemingway a communist? And now I've done enough research, I don't think he was a communist. He he said over and over again, I'm not a communist, I don't like fascism. Um, But because of being a reporter during the Spanish Civil War, He had a lot of communist friends who were writers, who were also on the same side of war as he was. They were journalists, they were writers, and so he had this nice connection with these friends. So he had friends that were communists, and (laughs) even though he didn't, I think he was more apolitical, Mm, but he didn't really... uh, support communism but that's that's always debated i mean that's people will go both ways on that but i personally think i go with what he said that he was not a communist that he just didn't like fascism
1: yeah Uh, i'm curious about his ongoing relationship with his family through those years did he stay very close with them did he go back to oak park later after the first few times and and also what did they think about for example, the Paris years or...
0: Well, it's, when I was doing the research for the book, I read a lot of his letters. And he, I'd say for the first 18 years of his life, he had a very good relationship with his family and with his parents. But Sun Also Rises is revolutionary in style but it was also pretty revolutionary in content, so we don't think about it as being all that revolutionary in content these days, but Lady Brett Ashley is sleeping around in that book and they're drinking a lot and, you know, he's looking at these people as lost, you know, he sees them kind of as the lost generation too, so Sun Also Rises was a huge success. And so when his parents read it, they were like, oh, you know, Ernest has done well. But they were shocked by the content. And his mother writes to him, it's the filthiest book I've ever read. (laughs) (laughs) And his father sent the original In Our Times, which were published in Paris, back to... The publisher, he said, I don't want that filth in my house. So he, Ernest wanted, like all of us do, the acceptance of our parents, and he worked very hard on his writing, but he didn't get the acceptance of his parents for that content. And he would send books to his sister, Marceline, and he'd say, well, you read it, but don't show it to her dad. Uh, so that was... That was where they drifted apart. It was, I think, because of the, the content. And then, of course, in 1928, his father committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And Ernest w- went back for the funeral for his father. And he was supportive of his mother mm-hmm. um, financially and emotionally. But he, he did not return to Oak Park. He just kept pursuing things, and I, I see his life sort of as a series of concentric circles, where he goes and he has an adventure, and that leads to another adventure, and that leads to another adventure. <laughs> he never goes back to the core, which was Oak Park, which yeah. was a very good beginning, and gave him a lot of self-confidence as a person, and it gave him skills as a writer, because he had a good education. Yeah. He had good English teachers.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Well, you must have enjoyed uh, studying all this, being a high school teacher in, in Oak Park. I mean, what, I what, did. Did, what does the community think of him now? I mean, I've been I to his house and seen the museum, and, mm-hmm. but, but I wonder, you know, does the average person living in Oak Park think of him as a, you know?
0: Well, I, don't, I can't really say what the average person thinks, but I, I lived in River Forest for 32 years. And I sort of understand the Oak Park mentality and the, the way his parents fought. And this Oak Park is still very invested in a good education. And I just had a sense for the values with which he was brought up and the things that he did. And just the fact that you know when he finished high school in 1918, he had the opportunity to do all those things as a high school student. He went to a very comprehensive high school because the town supported education, and they still do. Yeah. And so Oak Park is the kind of community that you know a lot of college professors move there from you know, because they're teaching at U of I or one of the downtown universities or medical professionals move there. Because it's close, and so it's always been kind of this liberal intellectual community that Hemingway grew up in. So I'd say those those values are are still there.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, what about you? Uh, <laughs> devoting so much time to studying this amazing life of adventure, mm-hmm. did that? rub off on you. I know you went to Cuba, <laughs> and Paris at least, mm-hmm. and several places following in his mm-hmm. footsteps.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I back when I was teaching American literature, Hemingway was my favorite author. And I think he was my favorite author. I liked the Hemingway Code. I liked the idea of looking at life with grace under pressure, and how do people handle themselves in tough situations, I really bought into his philosophy. And then I had been to a lot of places that he had been to, even back then. So I grew up in the Chicago area, I lived in River Forest, taught at his high school, kind of understood that. I spent a lot of time in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. My husband ran a watch company for a while in Switzerland, so when he talked about the Paris years and the Swiss years, I understood. In fact, I actually, after when I was writing the book, I went and found where he learned to ski, which is in this just remote little town <laughs> near Lake Le Mans in Switzerland. But I kind of knew where it was from back in the time I was living there. Um, and then Sun Valley and the fact that he had gone there, that's where I learned to ski. Yeah. So the, the part about the Sun Valley years, I, I knew, and I've, I've gone back there since then, and, and it's, it's really been an interesting part of my journey. I've been in all the houses that he lived in, the room where he was born, the room where he died, when I went back to Sun Valley, I knew that he kept his guns in the lower level of the house. And I knew where he shot himself in the vestibule. And I knew where he and Mary went the night before dinner, the night before he shot himself, where they went for dinner. So I went and I had dinner at the restaurant in Ketchum. And then I went down in the lower level of his house, retraced the steps, walked up the stairs, took a picture of the stairs, walked through the living room, and stood in the vestibule. It gave me chills. It's hard to even talk about it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I, I guess that begs the question, why did he kill himself? And by the end of his life, He had had a lot of concussions and he was suffering from depression. And Mary, his fourth wife, and their doctor suggested that he go to the Mayo Clinic for uh, electric shock treatment. And so he had electric shock treatment and that erased his memory. And so all of his writing, as you can tell from what I've said, was very experiential and that was gone he was trying to finish a movable feast and he was struggling with that even though he had these wonderful memories of paris when he started he was struggling to finish that and so the erasing of his memories just increased his depression and he just decided to end it he also knew by that time that he couldn't go back to cuba it was shortly after the Bay of Pigs invasion, which was in April of 1961. And then his buddy Gary Cooper, who had, was a famous movie star and was played the role of Robert Jordan, in, uh, for whom the bell tolls, he also lived in Sun Valley. And in May, his friend Gary Cooper died of cancer. And so Hemingway ended it
1: in July 2nd. It's um, really moving to see how moved you are (laughs) experiencing that, Uh, having given so much attention to his life. It must have been really painful and moving to be there. (laughs) So, um, you've already told so many amazing stories, but I'd love to end with one more if you have any other story of his travels that some moment that you really like.
0: Well, I'm a skier, and Hemingway, I think, learned to ski when he was in France, and he and Hadley would go to Switzerland in the winter. He always had this uh, habit of living in two places, and he that started when he was a child between Oak Park and Walloon. Lake, and then Paris. It was Paris, and he thought Paris was cold and clammy in the winter, so they'd go to the mountains of Switzerland. And then when he was in Key West, he'd go up to Wyoming, and when he was in Cuba, he'd go up to Sun Valley. Uh, so he learned to ski and, and love winter sports when he, during the years he would leave Paris and go to Switzerland. And then later on, he and some of his buddies, John Dos Passos and others, would ski in Austria. And at one point, I was reading that he was guiding these friends, these male friends of his, through the trees on these long wooden skis. And Hemingway was just thinking this was the best ever, and they were all, Terrified, and that it was at that moment that he thought of the term grace under pressure. So being a skier and having skied through trees, not on the kind of skis he had, but on shorter skis and better, easier to turn, I thought, yeah, that's when you do have to have grace under pressure, when you're making a turn and there's a tree in front of you and you know you've got to turn or you're going to be toast. So. That, that would be a story, I guess. That's
1: beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's My it. My pleasure. That's all there is. Yes. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Beautifully told.
2: You can find Nancy's book on Amazon. There's a link on our webpage, theobservereffectpodcast.com, or You can go to her webpage, nancycindelar.com, or you can find her book, Influencing Hemingway, in bookstores. I found it in Paris just three months ago at the Shakespeare and Company bookstore where Hemingway used to hang out. Make sure you go visit the Ernest Hemingway Birthplace Home Museum in Oak Park uh, in Chicago. They offer wonderful tours. Thank you to Dana Boulay for her music, and thank you listening